This is the For Freedom Podcast. This podcast exists to bring to light the legalism and abuse in the independent fundamental Baptist movement and to encourage believers to grow in grace through the scriptures. Now, here's your host, John Hollyfield. Everybody to the Four Freedom Podcast. I am your host John Hollyfield, and I'm excited about today's episode and our guest uh, Matthew Lyon, and um, he is uh, joining us uh, uh, from Maryland. And uh, Matthew is a pastor, but he's also, uh, if I got this right, he's a PhD in Baptist history from Southern Seminary in Louisville. And uh, Matthew, uh, what's the name of your church? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a pastor just outside of Baltimore. Um, the name of the church, which we just changed last week because we moved our location, is Reese Road Baptist Church. So we're a suburb of Baltimore. I've been pastor there about four years, and I just finished my PhD uh, about a year ago. And my dissertation was actually on John R. Rice and fundamentalism. Awesome, awesome. And yeah, I just did two episodes going through i'm doing an episode series on going through the in, history of the independent fundamental baptist movement and i did two episodes on j frank norris and a lot of the information that i got from nor about norris was reading a couple of your your papers and right. uh, and one dissertation that you you had done there um now let me you also do a podcast you do you have your own podcast yeah. correct yeah uh so i i was posting too much stuff on facebook so <laughs> so one of my elders at our church was like let's do a podcast and you kind of get uh, more conversational and less uh, provocative. So we do a podcast called History and Hope, where uh, we t- look at history, theology, culture from a Baptist perspective. And it's really kind of a free form. Right, right now we're doing Baptist distinctives, but we'll throw in stuff on race and Calvinism, just kind of whatever we're thinking about. Yeah. And, uh, and just, uh, just because of my personal interest, are you, are you working on a, on a book? I, oh, yes, I am. So um, there's a small publishing company called H&E uh, Publishing, which puts out a lot of Baptist work. So they, so I got a contract with them to write a book on titled, What is a Baptist? And it's geared at your average pastor or layperson who doesn't really need to be convinced so much as they just need to kind of understand. I, I, I know I'm a Baptist, but what is a Baptist? So something to give to new members, something to give to pastors for like Sunday school class. Uh, so it's just sort of a descriptive and it's really going off the podcast format, what we're doing on the podcast. Awesome. And I've, I've, when I found your podcast, I think it was, you'd already been like 12 or 13 episodes or something mm-hmm. like that. And I just listened to it. I was, cause I, I, my background and I, I haven't really told my story on this podcast. I've done it on another one. And, uh, you know, my background in fundamentalism just sort of, not a whole lot of honest education and uh yeah. whatever I, I spent the last five years just reading this book this book this book and then i found your podcast i was like yes yes that's what i've been learning the past five years <laughs> finally somebody's saying this stuff that, that knows what they're talking about <laughs> <laughs> well there's there isn't even on there, there's no really baptist history podcast there might be a few one out there that are newer but very few just dealing with baptist history um and then even on fundamentalism, like one of the reasons you read my stuff is because there's not a lot of stuff out there on fundamentalism. Yeah. There's a few books on um, J. Frank Norris, a couple books on Rice, but very little on in-depth look into fundamentalism. 
Yeah. And I think uh, one of the best assessments was a book that you recommended me, um, but really is not a, it's not a take on fundamentalism. It's, it's basically Baptist history. Is all. Leon Macbeth's book on, mm. on Baptist history yeah. uh, was really, I found a lot of great material on, you know, the successionism stuff and mm. yeah. the yeah. Um, just his, his assessment at the end of one of his chat, I think it's like deep in the book, like set page 700 something. His assessment on fundamentalism, I thought was absolutely phenomenal. And it was, it was written in like 87. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So yeah, gonna, that's the thing about fundamental. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I'll say the thing about fundamentalism. It's not an isolated. It's connected to everything. It's connected yeah. to Baptist history. It's connected to all Southern Baptists. So to understand it, you kind of understand things around it too. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to jump into this uh, this subject today um, of working through the history of the independent fundamental Baptist movement, understanding that at its beginning, it was not known as the independent fundamental Baptist movement, but there are uh, ties. I should, in the last episode, I showed the, the actual people in the IFB today that would hold that title. Uh, they claim J. Frank Norris as their forefather. And, and, that, and so uh, to follow the linkage, which I don't even like that type of connection, but I mean, sometimes it, it does play a part in it. The next person that sort of bridges the gap between breaking off, I guess, I mean, it, it, I mean Norris was kicked out <laughs> of the SBC, and where you get in the 80s and 90s of the IFB is John R. Rice. Ask, I'm talking about asking and receiving, asking and receiving. Isn't it a marvelous thing that God wants you to pray? Oh, ask for whatever you want. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be, not, be careful for nothing but in everything but prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Everything. In Psalm 37, 4, um, and uh, the scripture says, uh, uh, if you please the Lord, he said, you ask what you will. Ask what you will. Mark eleven twenty four. Um, wherefore I send you what things for every desire when you pray, believe she receive them, you shall have them. In uh, John fifteen seven, if you abide me and my words abide in you, shall ask what you will. Oh, ask whatever you want then. Ask whatever you want. Oh, if you don't want the right thing, keep on asking. God will help you to get right and want the right thing. It's a marvelous thing that God encourages us to pray. Not only encourages us, He bribes us to pray. He begs us to pray. He commands us to pray. He punishes us if we do not pray. And I suspect sometimes He gives you an automobile accident and rams your head through a windshield to get you to pray. Or he lets a boy go wild and get on dope and get arrested, so you'll pray. A poor wild girl goes out and sin until her dad and mother learn to pray. God wants you to pray. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. Him that knocketh it shall be opened. Okay. So, um, Matthew, why don't you tell us a little bit about Rice's early life and how he becomes, you know, this evangelist. Yeah, so Rice and Norris grew up both in Texas. Um, I don't. You probably know more than I do. I don't know where Norris grew up. Was it Central Texas, West Texas? He was uh, um, raised in Alabama, and then they moved to. Okay. Uh, they moved to Central Texas, and he was like eight or nine. Okay, so Rice grew up 
Central Texas, West Texas, which was a pretty rough frontier type of land. They would have regularly rode horses, uh, raised cattle. So it, it developed a kind of rough and tumble spirit, which when the controversies came out in the 20s, melded together very well. The sort of um, fighting the enemy, sort of standing for truth, rugged individualism. So Rice grew up in a, his, I think his dad was a preacher um, in a, sort of a cow town, rode his horse to seminary, um, sold his horse to pay for, for college, played football, just sort of this, it's hard for, he was born in, I think, 1899. So these are the early 20s. It's a long way from where we are in one sense. So he grew up as a devout Southern Baptist, went to Baylor, um, went to Southwestern, but he also went to the University of Chicago, which uh, this would have been in the 20s, was one of the three main focal points for liberalism. So liberalism, it was Boston University, uh, University of Chicago, and um, I think Crozier. These were where you went to learn liberal theology. So he went there to be a school teacher and maybe the president of the United States. That was his plan. And while he was there, he heard um, someone speak against evolution. They, they brought in a conservative to, to speak against evolution. I think it was William Jennings Bryan. And he was sort of converted to fundamentalism at that point when he realized that there were sides in the battle. And he was also working at the Pacific Garden Mission where he was working with, with sailors, with the homeless, a lot of evangelism. And so he was converted uh, in, in the sense of he wanted to be sort of a school teacher, sing, maybe politics, but seeing the fundamentalist battle up close and then working in evangelism at the mission turned him into an evangelist, a fundamentalist evangelist. And so he, went, he, he left the University of Chicago uh, went back to Texas and went to Southwestern to work on his on his master's degree, but became such a popular evangelist during that time that he also left Southwestern. And that, he's a Southern Baptist to the core at this point, much like J. Frank Norris was, traveling around, uh, preaching, singing. He, he was much, his personality was much different than Norris. Mm -hmm. Almost opposites. Everything I read about Norris makes me think that he was hard to be around <laughs> if you didn't agree with him. Everything I re read about John R. Rice was the opposite. Like even the people that didn't like him still would say, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hate him, but he's a nice guy. Um, in fact, his grandson wrote a book and his grandson is dabbled in like anarchy and communism, like hardcore out there. As far from fundamentalism as you can get. And he still was like, my dad was, a, my granddad was a great guy. <laughs> I think he's totally wrong, but he's a great guy. Mm -hmm. So Rice had a, he had a very good reputation as a person. He was very kind to children. He was very respectful of people. He was gracious. I, I was listening to your other podcast where you mentioned where he and Norris had the, had the break. Um, and even in that, John R. Rice was still nice to Norris. Yeah. Even after, he, after Norris lied to him. He, he was always kind towards Norris, never sought to tear him down. So it was, it's interesting that, and I think that's where their, their belief system was the same. Uh, and I think that's what ties fundamentalism together. But Rice was actually, I think he was actually a Christian. 
where I don't know about Norris. <laughs> and, and right, right. So he, um, so he's traveling around. He's he's gaining a, a he's gaining a, a sort of an audience in Texas, traveling in the twenties and thirties. Then he comes into contact with Norris because their their paths aligned. Um, the the fundamentalist modernist divide debate is happening. The seminaries are where the debate is happening. Uh, Baylor starts having some problems, and uh, they start teaching evolution in, in, at Baylor. So Rice starts speaking out against that. Well, Norris is doing the same thing. So they are, they're working together. Uh, I think Rice actually had an office at Norris's church. That's how close they were aligned. Uh, sharing uh, pulpit, he would teach in their conferences. So working pretty close together. Then Rice goes and starts a church in uh, Fort Worth. I think Fort Worth, Dallas. Dallas, Fort Worth, somewhere. Oak Cliff, I think. And you can sense there's a little bit of pressure. So all these churches, so, so J. Frank Norris, he's like the first one to, to be independent. Mm -hmm. And other people start following him and starting churches. And they all called him sort of the Fundamentalist Baptist Church. Rice does the same thing. He starts a church called Fundamentalist Baptist Church. But he right. later he changes the, changes the name to uh, Galilean Baptist. Mm -hmm. And you can sense that Rice is trying to do evangelism and fight heresy. Uh, J. Frank Norris is trying to build an empire. <laughs> and in order to build an empire, you have to have people who do what you say. And Rice, yeah, go ahead. Just a question. Okay, so Norris's, the shooting incident happened somewhere around between uh, 25, 1925. What time is this that they're sort of working together? Is this before or after? So, um, let me see if I can get my dates right. John R. Rice graduated, I think he graduated from college and seminary in the mid-20s. Mm -hmm. So, he would have been in his 20s at that time. Okay. Um, so, he would, he would have been young. So, not very influential. Um, Norris was much more established than Rice. I think Norris so was old. So, this probably would have been after the whole murder trial, all of that stuff. Yes, this would have been in the 30s. Okay. Yeah, so so at this point, Norris is out of the Southern Baptist Convention. Right. He's out. There's no going back. He's now taking a stand against the Southern Baptists. Uh, and Rice has Rice is still in the convention and leaves at about this time. Um, so, and he's naturally drawn to Norris because Norris has already taken a stand and is already sort of identified as a fundamentalist standing for what's right against the sort of denominational control. So when, Nor when, when Rice gets forced out, and basically what happened to Rice was they set him down and said, we're trying to raise money for the cooperative campaign, for the cooperative program, and you're going around criticizing our schools. It's making it hard to raise money. You're working with J. Frank Norris. Nobody likes him. <laughs> so if you want to stay a Southern Baptist, you need to separate from Norris and this, this style of, of fundamentalism and, and they said or you'll be blacklisted and he didn't like getting told what to do and rice was like look i get along with everybody but yeah. i will not yeah. be told what to do yeah and i think that's actually one of the redeeming qualities about rice he, he didn't look for problems he didn't ever try to cause problems but he refused to be pressured into conforming to what somebody else wanted and so he just said okay fine i'll i'll do what i have to do and of course an individual can't leave the southern baptist convention you don't join as an individual. You can't leave as an individual. 
but he basically, because he still took meetings at Southern Baptist churches, mm-hmm. uh, but he broke ties with them, essentially. So he, he's now gained a pretty good reputation. He was very intelligent. He was very well-spoken. He was very, uh, he, he didn't get, he didn't complete his master's degree, but he was probably one of the smartest people in fundamentalism and able to articulate things very well. So, so he's gaining a pretty popular uh, audience. And plus, he, people liked him. Mm-hmm. And so that helped, especially when you had people like J. Frank Norris. So that was how he began. And uh, as his fame grew, he started being asked other places. And he just sort of just gradually grew step by step. So in 1934, he's still in Texas, planted the church in Dallas. He starts the Sword of the Lord. Okay. And the way you can think about papers back then would be the way you could think about blogs and podcasts today. Right. It wasn't a really big deal to start a paper. I mean, if you had the material and the equipment for us today, I think we think of starting a newspaper. It's like, wow, you must be sort of an established person. Who's a big deal, but they would, you know, people look at podcasts the same way. So he started a newspaper to basically promote his ministry in Dallas and But starting a paper was the medium that you, he would have done to try to get his message out. Correct. Right. So that was sort of the Southern Baptist had newspapers. Every state had a newspaper. Norris had Um, one. Norris had his newspaper. So it was just the way that you would, like you say, get your message out uh, in a day with when there was no internet or anything. Mm -hmm. So he starts that in 34 and in the beginning, his daughters just went door to door, handing it out. in in Dallas. So it wasn't, it would be like, maybe like a live stream. Like, you know, how churches will live stream their mess, their services. It would be similar to that concept. So he starts that in 1934. And there at this time, because fundamentalism is so new, people are looking for something. And so Rice steps in and provides them with written material with sort of an, it's hard for us so many years later, a hundred years later, Everyone was a part of associations. Everyone was a part of a denomination. If you weren't part of it, you were sort of that rural church who was kind of weird maybe and did your own thing. But every regular Baptist was a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, the American Baptist Association. and Everyone was a part of something. Mm-hmm. So when Rice and Norris leave the convention, it's new. It's a new kind of thing. And so what they're doing is they're providing a structure in place of a denomination because everybody was used to a denomination. So there were, so the news, so the sword of the Lord became so popular because it provided a focal point instead of the Southern Baptist convention. You now have the sword of the Lord paper or the sword of the Lord conference. Okay. So we today, as when we think of fundamentalism, we think of it surrounding conferences, colleges, papers, but that was what developed out of this independent movement. Okay. So, the last episode I talked about their, the Norris rice split from Norris's perspective. How does this sort of come about? I mean, we do, we do just, you just mentioned that rice didn't like getting told what to do. So it's sort of give sort of that aspect mm-hmm. with rice, with what was happening there with Norris. Right. So fundamental, so independent Baptist fundamentalism starts in Texas essentially. Uh, there were other independent Baptists or other fundamentalists in the North, but they're separate, GRBC, things like that. So Texas is the focal point and it spreads from there and starts a, 
it starts gaining traction. And part of that reason is Southerners were moving north. So when Norris goes to Detroit to pastor the church there, he doesn't go to a northern church. He goes to a southern church that was transplanted. So Southerners are moving north for work. When they get there, they want a church. So they kind of gather together, and Norris is their southern connection. Uh, this happened in California, too. California was a huge place for fundamentalism, not because West Coast people wanted fundamentalism, but because people from the South moved out there. That's why Billy Graham got a big start out in California. Uh, so as Rice is moving north with the fundamentalist spread, Norris already has a head start. He's already got a church in the north, and he wants to control that growth. Rice just wants to reach people. He just wants to – I'm sure there was ambition involved. And so he starts to setting up meetings. He starts going places without really coordinating with J. Frank Norris. And J. Frank Norris notices that he's becoming maybe more popular in some places. And so he tries to rein him in and tries to control. And Rice, Rice's motto was, we're equals doing the same mission. And so we'll work together because we're doing the same thing. But at no point did Rice ever feel like he was being t controlled or governed by Norris. And so Rice would have been happy to continue to work with Norris, which is a problem in itself, as long as Norris treated him like an equal. Right. Just sort of let him do his thing. It was when Norris started to try to, to dictate where Rice was going to have meetings, how he was going to have the meetings, that Rice said, I don't want to fight but I'm not taking orders. And so Norris, as he did repeatedly, just sort of put the pressure on, started pressuring his friends, then basically just openly lied about Rice. And I think the, the New York meeting, uh, I think Binghamton, New York, he, he sent, he told the pastor up there that Rice believes in healing, mm -hmm. basically said that, that Rice was a Pentecostal. Mm -hmm. which which Norris knew that was a lie mm -hmm. because Rice had already pr printed materials on it. And that was the breaking point because Rice said, I, no matter how hard I try, if you're going to lie about me, we can't work together. <laughs> That's just not going to work. So Rice was, you can almost just think of Rice just doing his own thing and working with whoever he would, would, would work with him. He would work with Assemblies of God. He would work with Presbyterians. He would work with Pentecostals. He would work with anybody who believed the fundamentals. And he would say, I'll work with any Pentecostal. We just agree that there's no speaking in tongues during the meeting. So Rice was very broad. Mm -hmm. And he would work with Norris. And he would work with Billy Graham. And he would work with Bob Jones. And he would work with W.A. Criswell, the Southern Baptist. He would work with anybody. And what he wouldn't do is be told how to, to minister. Mm -hmm. And that's where you see that, that independence. Right. Um, he, he was very independent and in some ways that worked out well. I think that's what happened with Norris In other ways it, it was uh, not, not as much of a virtue. So is, is rice. Okay. So does rice's ministry take a hit after the split with Norris or does it grow? Uh, it grew. Yeah. Uh, the more people got to know Norris, the less they liked him. 
<laughs> and so splitting with Norris, I'm sure there were problems, but I'm guessing that everybody who knew about it thought Rice was more likely to be right than wrong. Yeah. And Rice was, he was more of a careful thinker. He wasn't as uh, much of a showman as Norris was, which means he could have an influence outside of his meetings. So Norris would draw people to hear him preach mm -hmm. because he was just loud and entertaining and crazy. But outside of that, he didn't have as much of an influence. Rice, on the other hand, could write and then he could send his materials out. And so Rice, I think he has something like 250 books yeah. printed, which means you are learning from Rice without ever meeting him. And so his ministry is growing in that sense, um, drawing people who were less about the entertainment and more about the information. So no, his ministry continues to grow. Plus he, he made friends and Norris made enemies. Yeah. Uh, regularly. Yeah. So Rice grows the, uh, he moves from Texas, right? Yeah. He moves to, um, Wheaton. Wheaton college was sort of a, a, a central location for fundamentalism. Okay. Is it this time that he starts to work with Billy Graham? Um, Let's see. No, that would have been later. So he moves to Wheaton because he wants his daughters to go to college there. It's funny when we talk about Wheaton now. Yeah. Wheaton now is not a fundamentalist college, but back then it was. Um, and it was a more of a central location. It was a better place to get meetings and, and reach people. Uh, he has some problems there. He's so independent. He can't work with anybody, <laughs> even local churches. It's not a real prominent part of his ministry, but if you look, if you dig a little bit, you can see the conflicts. Okay. So that would have been the 30s and 40s. Then he moves to Murfreesboro, Tennessee right. in the 40s, mainly because Murfreesboro was such a central location for him to travel from. He was a traveling evangelist. That was his, one of his primary ministries. And it was, I think Billy Graham would have been about that time, the 40s. Yeah, so it, it may have been some overlap between Wheaton and Murfreesboro. Um, okay. Those were just st strategic moves, and he spent the rest of his time in, in, in Murfreesboro. Right. That, I, spent, I work in Murfreesboro, so that's my backyard. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Drive up and down yeah. John R. Rice Boulevard regularly. I was saying they have, a, they have a road name after him. Yeah, yep. so that was, yeah, that's the building he worked in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> tell the story between, of, of Rice and Graham. Yeah, so Billy Graham obviously was a very gifted person. And so he was going to succeed no matter where he went. But he grew up in North Carolina. And if you're a conservative in North Carolina, you're a fundamentalist back in the 40s, 30s, 40s. So he's drawn to the, the conservative fundamentalist evangelistic crowd, which would have been everybody. There weren't really camps back then like there are now. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of a big movement. And so he starts preaching. And John R. Rice made a point to promote evangelists, young evangelists. When he came across evangelists who had potential, he would use the sword of the Lord to promote him, which would get him meetings. Rice's goal over everything was evangelism. That was his driving force. So he would use the sword of the Lord to connect young evangelists to churches. And so when, when he comes across Billy Graham, I mean, if you just listen to young Billy Graham, you can just there's a there's a quality there that just draws people right and he recognized this this young evangelist is going to be somebody let me help him 
So he begins to promote him into the sword of the Lord, and he sends him to Bob Jones University or Bob Jones College, I guess, at this time. So Billy Graham goes to Bob Jones uh, under Bob Jones Sr., I believe. This would have been the 40s. Um, that didn't work out. <laughs> Billy Graham was a little bit too normal <laughs> to fit in under Bob Jones. And so he gets in trouble, which I'm sure it was – I can't imagine how minor the, the, the problem was goes to Bob Jones's office. So Bob Jones Sr., who is one of the most prominent evangelists in America, uh, Methodist evangelist, national traveling, has his own school. He says to Billy Graham, you'll never amount to anything if you leave here. <laughs> one of the worst prophecies ever given. Uh, and Billy Graham, I think Billy Graham said to himself, I'd rather amount to nothing than stay here another semester. <laughs> so, Billy Graham leaves and goes down to a college in Florida and gets his degree there. And Rice the whole time is like, I don't know about all that stuff, but this guy can preach. So Rice is the one who began Billy Graham's career. He's the one who connected him with churches. He's the one who promoted him. He's the one who got him his ministry to start with and sort of mentored Billy Graham. And we know Billy Graham later. I think the first time he really comes to a national sense is when he goes to California and 49, I think, mm-hmm. and gets national attention. But he already had years of working with, with uh, John R. Rice mm-hmm. in the fundamentalist circles. And, and Billy Graham was a fundamentalist. But as his ministry grew, he wasn't as interested in fundamentalism as he was in evangelism. Right. Which Rice was fine with because Rice was all about evangelism. And Rice continues to work through him to the 50s in the fifties, you start to see a clash between conservative evangelicals and fundamentalist evangelicals. And Billy Graham wasn't really about the fundamentalist life. He just wanted to travel and go to Scotland and England and preach the gospel and have a huge ministry. Mm-hmm. And Rice was, was with him the whole time. Bob Jones sees this sort of what they would call compromising. And most fundamentalists abandoned Billy Graham in the mid fifties. John R. Rice doesn't. Do you think, however, though, that maybe there might be a little bit of chip on the shoulder of Bob Jones with this? Right. Knowing the Jones family? Yes. But I I don't have any historical records. Yeah, (laughs) right. Okay. I have some, I mean, even today, well, I don't know about today, but as recently as about 10 years ago, I mean, I have some church members here at, our, at the church I pastor at, and they, they tell me they have family members that went to Bob Jones, and they have a notebook yeah. <laughs> of, of what's wrong with Billy Graham. I mean, he, yeah. he became a sour taste in that place's mouth. Yeah, I don't know if it was a chip on the shoulder as much as a – and he was the epitome of what Bob Jones was against. Mm. So they would say, we knew this from the beginning. He got kicked out of Bob Jones for a reason. And he just continued down that path of being the epitome of the compromising evangelical. Yeah. So they hate, they hate Billy Graham more than a, a sort of a liberal mm-hmm. because they, they think Billy Graham betrayed fundamentalism and that he's sort of a double agent. And so he's more dangerous than an open liberal. Um, and so Bob Jones they always had it out for people like that, you know, especially in the fifties. So um, 
but but Rice sticks with Billy Graham to the point where Rice almost begins to look like uh, kind of foolish defending mm-hmm. Graham because Graham was leaving fundamentalism, but he was kind of telling Rice two stories, kind of shielding Rice to keep his support, I think. Right. And Rice was a little bit naive and trusting, and, but he was the last one to split with Billy Graham. Um, ever, fundamentalism had all left Billy Graham behind, but Rice was the last one. And it was because he saw how many people were coming to the meetings and he just thought Rice was willing to overlook a lot of stuff if you were having evangelistic meetings. Yeah, he, he which, which a lot. may be sort of proof of the pudding with what happens towards the end of his life with some of the people that he platformed in the late yes. 70s. Yeah, so it's funny. Like, How does someone who can get along with Billy Graham when nobody else can in fundamentalism also work with Jack Hiles and Jerry Falwell, who seemed to be the opposite of Billy Graham. And it's because Rice was willing to put up with just about anybody who held to the basic fundamentals and was an evangelist. Yeah, but, and I I, I struggle. I'm not a historian, (laughs) but I know as an historian, you, you, you focus on looking at the facts and try your best to stay away from giving necessarily your opinion. I find that a lot with your writing. But at the same time, I can't help my sort of filter coming right. through here of, um, you know, uh, I just lost what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, but um, well, let's 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 continue on. So, well, we never really got to I think this the split with Billy Graham. Yeah. So Billy Graham, so at this time, you've got what's called like the, um, the evangelical movement is beginning. Mm-hmm. So prior to the 50s, you just had two groups. You had the liberals and the non-liberals, liberals and fundamentalists. That was it. You either believed everything the Bible said was true or you used modern methods to sort of undermine it. Those were the two camps and obviously very large camps. Well, then you start seeing two kinds of evangelicals two kinds of fundamentalist. There's the kind that we now call fundamentalist. And then there's the kind that we now call evangelicals. And so the fundamentalists were very careful about working with liberals, very careful about keeping separation between uh, true doctrine and false doctrine. And what, what became to be called the neo-evangelicals. Mm-hmm. They're called neo-evangelicals because everybody was called evangelical. They're called neo-evangelicals because they're a new kind that says we don't want to be like fundamentalists where we won't work with anybody. We want to work with people. We want to get out there. We don't want such a high bar of separation. And so they begin to split. And Billy Graham is the most popular evangelist at the time. And he's sort of on the middle of these two groups. So Rice is kind of in the middle, but more on the fundamentalist side. Billy Graham's in the middle, but more on the neo-evangelical side. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're the two closest to each other, but on different sort of sides of the fence. And, but as the pressure mounts, the neo-evangelicals would work with liberals. They would go to conferences with them in a way that current evangelicals wouldn't. Neo-evangelical is, and I hear this story all the time, that's an old word that doesn't mean much anymore. Like if you hear someone call somebody a neo-evangelical today, it's a, it's a sign that they don't know the history. 
they don't really know what they're talking about. Because uh, neo-evangelicals kind of disappeared or got called something else. So, so when you think of an evangelical day, today, someone like a John Piper, Mark Dever, John MacArthur, a, um, I don't know, name the sort of conservative evangelical. You wouldn't see them having a preaching conference with a liberal. And I'm talking about theological liberals, obviously not political or anything, but someone who would deny the inerrancy of scripture or the virgin birth or the resurrection. You're not going to see Don Carson hosting a meeting with those guys, just sort of sharing the platform. Mm-hmm. But the neo-evangelicals did do that. And so Billy Graham, and the breaking point is really the 1957 New York campaign, where he had neoliberals on the platform with him, mm-hmm. basically promoting what would be what we would call either heresy or certainly heterodox. Because that's what neo-orthodox people, that's what neo-evangelicals did. They'd work with anybody, Catholics, liberals, anybody. Rice couldn't go that far. And so that's where the split comes. He said, I'll work with anybody, but I can't work with someone who promotes liberals. And honestly, I think, I may not put a lot of opinions in my paper, but I, I'm not a fundamentalist, not anymore. Right, yeah. I but I think he was right. Like, I think at that time he was right. I think Rice was right and Billy Graham was wrong. If you are a conservative, not a fundamentalist, just a, a historic conservative, you believe what Christians have believed for a thousand, two thousand years, and you have somebody come up in your meeting who doesn't believe core doctrines of the, of the faith and pray, I don't think that's, a, I don't think that's right. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's promoting false doctrine. Right, because there's some level of endorsement there. Yeah. Yeah, the, the people in the crowd think, well, if this guy can pray, I and mean, we do it today, you know how it is when a guest preacher comes to a church and the pastor hasn't come up and pray, right. it's an endorsement. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But when you have someone who denies fundamental doctrine, pray at your meeting, you're endorsing their theology to a degree. You're saying it's safe. And as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, it's not safe doctrine. It's dangerous. And so John R. Rice was right to break with Billy Graham. And, and evangelicals today realize that. They look back at that time, and they realize it was wrong. The Tim Kellers, the Matt Chandlers, the, the Mark Devers, all these guys look back at that period of history in the 50s, 60s, 70s and say, that was a mistake. We gained nothing from that. We just watered down the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so Rice knew that at the time. So that was one of the, the, the good things that Rice did. You know, he never spoke against Billy Graham after that. Yeah. He, he, was, he was always friendly. He was never trying to tear Billy Graham down well, because I mean, he believed in the message. Yeah, and even today when we talk of, I say we, those that would consider themselves conservative evangelicals, talk of Billy Graham, we, mm-hmm. uh, we, I mean, we, sh- we show respect towards him. And we yeah. show, you know, hey, whether we have – we, we draw the line here or there with maybe the altar call situation or – uh, who he was shaking hands or platforming. Right. It, it's hard to deny that God used the man. Yeah. And Rice would say, he says, that's why I support Billy Graham because Billy Graham preaches the gospel. Mm-hmm. He never, he would have supported Billy Graham as long as Billy Graham did not platform liberals. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, 
Rice was very open to all sorts of associations as long as they weren't denying the faith. And so he was always positive towards Billy Graham. Yeah. Well, uh, I am going to skip us. I had written down the, I wanted to cover one section, but we're going to skip over that. There's a, uh, an interesting part of, of Rice's life where he actually has a controversy with Lewis Berry Schaefer over a book that Schaefer wrote. If you're interested in, in knowing that story, uh, the book One in Hope and Doctrine that I've referenced before really details that, that uh, controversy, which is quite interesting to see how Rice is, is really one of the only instances I think that Rice really uh, is on the, the attack card almost. And, uh, but I want, I want to move towards the, um, because I, I want to talk about Rice's theology. Well, <laughs> barely touched that, but I mean some, some racism issues as well. Um, yeah. But right now, let's let's go to his split with Bob Jones Jr. and you know that it's pretty much right towards the end of his life. Yeah, so this has been the seventies. Um, he'd always worked closely with Bob Jones Sr. and then Bob Jones Jr. replaces Dad after he died in the fifties, I think. So it was Bob Jones Jr. that split with Billy Graham. Um, so Rice, like I said, he worked with anybody, but Bob Jones began to be more, even more conservative. Bob Jones Jr. and I think the third, but especially Bob Jones Jr. began to call themselves hyper-fundamentalist. They were primarily concerned with preserving the separation between true doctrine and false doctrine mm-hmm. to the point where they said we – not only separate from false doc from false teachers like liberals, but if you support them, we'll separate from them too. So this is the thing about Billy Graham. Rice never split with Billy Graham. He only split with Billy Graham's ministry. Okay. And if Billy Graham had ever invited Rice to a meeting without liberals there, I think Rice would have gone. Huh. He never split with Billy Graham because Billy Graham never denied the faith. And so Rice never had a reason to split. Okay. He only could. He only said, "I can't work with the ministry that platforms liberals." And that's a big distinction that Rice had that a lot of, that Bob Jones did not have. Yeah. Bob yeah. Jones said, "Billy Graham's he's so far out there. He's the most dangerous." And I think they say he's the most dangerous man in America because he's he believes the right thing, but he works with liberals. Therefore, he is the problem. Rice never said that, that Graham was the problem. And the thing was that there were some hard feelings there, some, some underhanded stuff, so they never worked together. But I think if, if Rice died in 80, I think if in 79, Billy Graham had invited him to an all-conservative meeting, Rice would have gone. Really? Yes. Yeah, he never, he never broke with Billy Graham because Billy Graham wasn't a heretic. Yeah. He wasn't a liberal. He just stopped working with him because Billy Graham decided to work with with neo evangel or, or neo orthodox liberals. Bob Jones, on the other hand, says Billy Graham's he is the most dangerous person because he works with liberals. So therefore, if you work with Billy Graham, you're part of the problem too. So we can't work with anybody who works with Billy Graham because so the Southern Baptist Convention, which harbored some liberalism, was out of the picture. And John Arise did not have that vision. So he worked with W.A. Criswell, who was a prominent Southern Baptist, would speak together. 
But there came a breaking point, and, and Bob Jones Jr. really became more hardline during the 50s. Mm-hmm. So there was a time when, when Bob Jones Jr., following more of his father and more of Rice, would have had someone like W.A. Criswell at a meeting. After this, though, and especially in the 70s, 60s, 70s, they start making a line where if, if there's a Southern Baptist, we can't support it. Mm-hmm. That's tearing a Christian. And, and so it came to the point where they started attacking Rice because and even though they were close friends, it, Rice was working with anybody. He was working with the Southern Baptist. He was having Chris Willett. And so now rice becomes part of the problem. And there were some other things going on. There's always more than one reason. But the main thing was Bob Jones was a, there's no limit to the amount of separation they practice. Second, third, fourth, fifth degree, whatever they can trace out. And rice only separated from liberals. That's it. He would not work with liberals. He'd work with any Bible believing Christian. And so Bob Jones, he, they just, they labeled him basically as a, sympathizer is a is complicit in liberalism and and rice was like i'm not taking this hard line stance with you we're done and so he so he splits in the same way that he split from j frank norris because he wasn't willing to be a hyper fundamentalist which is what bob jones called themselves yeah they were sort of doing the same thing giving him an ultimatum right right yeah yeah so this i think it was 72 it was break ties with southern baptists and those like them or break ties with us. Mm-hmm. And Rice was like, I'm not breaking ties with anybody, but if that's what you want to do, go for it. Like, if you want to uninvite me, that's fine. And Bob Jones, it's funny because in a lot of ways, people think Bob Jones is more is less conservative, is less fundamentalist than somewhere like a Hiles Anderson or a Pensacola. Mm-hmm. But in other ways, they're more, they were more fundamentalist. Oh, yeah. Just not on issues, like, not the superficial issues, like dress standards and music yeah. and Bible versions. And, and, you know, after that, they sort of end up like, like, like we can do sometimes. I mean, this is sort of, I think we all can do this whenever we, we break with something, but they start nitpicking everything. Cause I, I, I think I read in part of my research, I read Nathan Finn's paper on yeah. the, you know, they just went after nitpicking his, his view of, of inspiration. I think it was. Yeah. The mechanical dictation. Issues. Yeah. 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 Rice was, he wasn't real clear on what he believed there and they jumped on it and it was a very sort of let us show you another reason john r rice is part of the problem okay well with that why don't we that that, that, that makes a good segue into sort of what uh john r rice sort of because you wrote you know, most of your dissertation was on his theology yeah and so talk a little bit about sort of his view of theology and things. I know this probably could have been a whole hour episode, but then sort of transition that into, I guess, probably the glaring flaw that I see with him was, was the racism. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as I was studying his theology, so the thesis of my, my work is evangelism was Rice's core conviction that helped him navigate all other aspects of his faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the, the, the foundation of his theology, and I believe this is true of all fundamentalism is authority. I think this is the key to fundamentalism is the issue of authority, the, the concept of authority. So what are the, what are fundamentalists most known for? I think it would be 
the authority of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture. And I think I personally agree with most fundamentalists on how they view scripture as inerrant, authoritative, God's word, um, the only authoritative and final rule of faith for all of us. So, but you can see how that's based on a concept of authority. So that's why it's so prominent. Mm -hmm. So when you, I think when you look at fundamentalism, there are common points of theology with traditional Christianity, the resurrection, the word of God. But what makes fundamentalism is this, this obsession or no, obsession is not the right word. This focus on authority as the way you do theology. So, so the issue of authority is the lens through which you view everything. And in one sense that make that, that, doesn't sound bad. God's authority, the Bible's authority, the um, necessity of, of repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus. You see, this all sounds like just regular Christianity, traditional Christianity. Um, and I think that's why fundamentalists is so, con is so easily called traditional Christianity, because it sounds like what people were saying a thousand years ago. The Bible is true that you must repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. And so fundamentalism is designed to um, unpack the idea of authority from scripture. The problem with that, and this is where Rice fails, is that that's not the defining principle in scripture. Authority is not the defining principle in scripture. It is a part of scripture, certainly. But the defining principle in scripture for, especially in the New Testament, is love. That's the core of theology. For God so loved the world. They will know you by your love one for another. Jesus says, here's the two great commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. If any man says he loves God but doesn't love his brother, he's a liar. So there's the core of theology that fundamentalism misses. It's not even that they're wrong. It's that they are looking through the wrong lens. So they get some things right. They get the authority of scripture right. They get the Trinity right. They get the resurrection right. Because all of those things work well with an with a authority power mentality. But what they get wrong is love. So this is where fundamentalism goes wrong. John R. Rice tried to navigate the two practically. So he would have been described as a loving person, I think. But his theology was authority. And so evangelism was more about saving people from their rebellion and getting them right with God, right? There's a power above you. God is the power. We must save people from negative power, which is part of the, of the Bible, but it misses the whole point of God loves you. God loves you enough to die for you. And so when you read Rice's stuff, you see hints of that, but it's, it's mostly about authority. And I think when you look at fundamentalism, there's the problem. It's not that they believe the Bible is true. It's not even, so I believe that in, um, I don't want to call it complementarianism because there's a lot of people I don't agree with, but the basic principle that the elder, the pastor of the church should be a man. Right. Okay. So, so fundamentalists believe that too, but they believe it in a different way, in a different system. Why are there so many fundamentalists who are abusive? Because their theology is about power. It's about control. It's about authority. 
Yeah. You mix a, a theology of a power of power and control with a bad person and you get corruption. You get oppressive systems. And I'll even go as far as to say this. My wife asked me recently, she said, do you think every fundamentalist pastor is abusive? Cause her pastor that she grew up with was a very nice person. He would never, he was never harsh to anybody. He was never um, physically, emotionally abusive. And I said, are they teaching fundamentalism? Their theology is abusive. They may not be abusive. There are many, many, many independent fundamental Baptists who are kind, who are gracious, who are loving, who are caring. But the theology they're teaching is all about power. It's not about love. And that can't sustain anything. It, it just it, it collapses in on itself. God's system is not based on power. It's based on love. So when fundamentalism creates a system based on hierarchy, authority, power, it just creates a haven for abuse of that power. Right. And so true Christianity is built on love. So, so this goes into Rice. He believed that authority was at the core. So when you come to racism and the civil rights movement specifically, so what is Rice most concerned about? It's about respect for authority, respect for God's authority, respect for God's appointed authority. And so what he sees with the civil, what he sees in America is that there's a, a, there's a law and order structure. So he grew up in the 20s, mm -hmm. right in the middle of Jim Crow. His dad was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Really? Yes. Okay, I didn't know that fact. Yeah, so he's deep in, he's deep in it. He opposes the Klan, unlike J. Frank Norris, who supported the Klan. But the reason John R. Rice opposed the Ku Klux Klan was because they were breaking the law. They were going out at night. They were beating people up. They were wearing masks. They were causing chaos. He wasn't against the Klan because they were racist. He was against them because they went outside the law. So, so it's all back to this law and order, respect authority, God's authority first, which I think all Christians would agree with that, but then also God's appointed authority, so the government. And if the government says that segregation is the way things are, we need to support that. That's, that was Rice's mentality. He didn't agree with segregation. He didn't think it was the best thing to do. But he didn't want to tear it down either because it would cause too much chaos. Right. So he opposed segregation as long as everybody could do it quietly and peacefully. He opposed lynching because it was extra judicial. But he made excuses for people who lynched because he said, well, what do you expect when all of these black people are out there terrorizing our women? Is what he said. He said, a white woman can't walk down the street at night without being feared for her life because of black people. And then he, so then he goes on to say, so what do you expect when some men take the law into their own hands? Which is a defense for lynching. No. But his reason against lynching was because it broke the law. It wasn't because he loved anybody. It wasn't because people were made in God's image. Civil rights shows up. He's against the civil rights movement because what is the civil rights movement? It's breaking the law. It's protest. It's going and marching in the streets. Mm -hmm. And he said, no Bible believing Christian would ever disrespect the authority like that. So, John, so Emmett Till, who was horribly killed, lynched, brought it on himself. He said, he said, Emmett Till was killed 
because Northern agitators have created an environment where people just do whatever they want. And what do you expect when, when you disregard authority? This is what happens. So the civil rights movement was not actually, in his view, promoting equality. It was destroying things because it was disrespecting authority. Mm. So his racism was not because he thought the Bible taught that people should be, that one person was better than the other. It was because everything was built on law and order. And King was not about law and order. He was about justice. He was about equality. And so if that meant going out in the street and marching peacefully to bring attention to it, King, Martin Luther King would say, that's what we need to do. Rice said, no, you're causing agitation, and that's unbiblical. That's sinful. The whole point of the gospel is to get rid of law-breaking. And now, and now we got these civil rights protesters out here breaking the law. Yeah. So he, he opposed it. So it's, it's deeper than just him being a racist. It's a theology that supports unjust government, unjust cultures, unjust systems. Which in a case, I mean, the way you just explained that really, it helped my mind so much sort of tie together basically the culture that we have today. I mean, influence, let me say it this way, the culture we have today in Baptist churches in the South, because when you have decades of that kind of preaching coming down, I mean, you get to today and of course there's justification for you know, a police officer doing whenever he wants to, to somebody just to restrain them. And, yeah. um, yeah, Rice spoke about some of the stuff that Rice said sounds like he was talking about today. He said in 1965, he said, there's no policeman out there who ever stops anybody because they're racist. They're just trying to maintain order. And so if people would not, Basically, if people wouldn't break the law, the police wouldn't bother them. Now, 1965 is interesting because that's, that's the Selma riot or the Selma march. We know mm-hmm. pictures where we see the police hitting people with batons, turn the water hoses on that, that really famous march. That same year, he says, basically, there's no bad police. They're all good because they're all trying to maintain order. And if they've got to beat people to do so, well, you should have obeyed them. So it's not that he necessarily supports the abuse. He justifies it by saying law and order is the most important thing. If you don't want to get beat up by the police, just comply. Because that's 1965. Nothing's changed. The theology is still there. The justification for police brutality is still there. It's law and order above everything. Which overflows sort of in the the context of of my focus in the podcast and sort of what I've been doing my counseling training in is, is abuse within the church sort of comes from the same idea of the authority of the quote unquote man of God. You know, yeah. that, that, that's sort of my idea that I'm working on as part of the, I'm doing a chapter in the book that I'm writing on pastoral A friend gave me the idea, you know, they call it pastoral authority. Uh, I'm going to call it pastoral superiority, mm-hmm. which is basically you know, yeah. and that is to me the number one factor that is the open door to abuse. Yeah, it's law and order. It's it's the authority that God has given cannot be violated, even if things are wrong. The primary thing we have to do is keep God's authority intact. 
which if it means sweeping things under the rug to protect the man of God, you do it. Yeah. Rice never spoke out against any of this stuff. How is it that J. Frank Norris has 100 complaints, as W.B. Riley said, Yeah. and Rice didn't ever speak a word about it? I don't think – Rice has zero scandals in his life. Sexual, financial, he never had a, a single problem in his ministry. But he was around a lot of people who did. Yeah. And he never said a word. Because in his mind, he didn't support what was happening, but he didn't want to undermine the authority of God by criticizing the man of God. Well, it just, just provides cover. And okay, so that sort of brings me back. You remember when I said I forgot what I was going to say? Yeah, I, I remembered it. And that was the idea of, okay, so you say Rice's framework and his theology and sort of his ability to excuse a lot of things was evangelism first, evangelism first. Mm-hmm. But was it really evangelism? Or I don't know if I can even ask this question. Uh, or was it just the the facade of evangelism. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, did he, it was, was it just the numbers? Was it just the mega, right. the mega, you know, the, the big events, you know, if this guy has this many, you know, I mean, you think about Norris, you, we, me and you have both sort of said Norris didn't get along with anybody, but Rice put up with him because of the results. So if you're talking about Rice specifically, I think Rice had good intentions. Okay. Now, I'm not talking about fundamentalism, just John R. Rice. John R. Rice seemed to be a well-intentioned person who was trying to do the right thing. And he was not trying to manipulate anybody. He wasn't trying to promote himself any more than anyone else, any one of us are doing. Yeah. But I think he was working within a system that if you weren't as morally sound as John R. Rice you easily slid into that very quickly. So Rice was a very, his moral character is very high. Right. And this comes from everybody, friends, enemies, family. Um, I studied under his son-in-law at Tennessee Temple. Um, His moral character was very high. But not everybody else's was. (laughs) So while Rice may not have manipulated people into decisions, he was using the same tactics that other people could manipulate. Um, so it's not so much that he was doing the right thing. It's more that his moral character kept him from using those tactics in the wrong way, but the tactics themselves were manipulative. Yeah. So, so the system he was using was corrupt. He wasn't corrupt. Um, I think <laughs> Man, it, it, that is so contradictory, isn't it not? So I think the proof's in the pudding. Look well, no, I'm not denying what you're saying. I'm just saying, right. how does how does how does he, you know, how does somebody do live their life like right. that? Because they believe that God said so, and if God said it, it doesn't matter what anything else doesn't matter. So that's the authority structure. Yeah. When you have a very black and white, straightforward view of Scripture, where if the Bible says it, I believe it, but you're really shaped by American Christianity, um, you just sort of deceive yourself. I think, and you're deceived by your culture. But what you produce is you produce a J. Frank Norris, you produce a Jack Hiles, you produce a Jack Scott. Um, You produce a lot of abusive people who don't have as much moral character as you to prevent that. And and Rice was abusive. He wasn't physically abusive. I don't think he was verbally abusive, but he was very controlling. Um, 
and then he perpetuated abuse in other people's ministries by by platforming them by supporting them so it's it's the contradiction of john r rice which is why he's so popular because he was such a moral person mm -hmm. but he planted the seeds of everything bad that followed him and he put up with j frank norris so he's complicit at best okay so this i know we've gone a little long but uh this is the last thing i want to close up this way how do we now from your perspective matthew you're a historian um you know you, like i said earlier historians a lot of times focus on the facts you know try mm -hmm. to and it, that's that's i think one of the things we respect about historians is they they try to you know deviate from opinions but how do we look at these figures in history where they may have some things commendable about them but there's just like you know and from our from our viewpoint it's like how could you you do that i mean i i think of you know guys like luther who was very anti-semitic and um i mean even i think you even said this you guys just covered the lord's supper on your podcast right yeah and you told the story about how he you know got yeah. in zwingli's face and basically said you know if you don't agree exactly with me on this thing you're not even a brother in christ yeah <laughs> how do we look at these guys and then you know we can yeah god used them but yeah what's it, how do we view that yeah so part of it so you begin with the knowledge what the bible teaches us that everyone's flawed mm -hmm. okay? and everyone agrees on that but what's happened practically is you're only here one side of the story. There's the problem. Okay, so let's take the, the original example of good and bad in the, in the New Testament, Peter. Every Christian on earth knows that Peter is great and terrible at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right? No one's saying Peter's the best. I mean, he, he rebukes Christ to, to his face. Christ says, get behind me, Satan. He, then he goes and leads the greatest revival that we can see in the New Testament with Pentecost. Then he has Paul rebuke him to his face months or years later. And you're just like, okay, well, that's just people, right? Sometimes they do great things and we, we follow them. Sometimes they do terrible things and we just recognize that no one's perfect. What happens though, is we don't do that later. So Luther's an interesting example, because if you go to a, um, just a regular seminary, like, a just an evangelical seminary and you ask people about luther they're going to be like yeah he was great but he was anti-semitic and they're going to have that same view of this like well read his works on justification avoid his stuff on 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 jewish people he's great in some areas he's terrible in others but when you get some other characters you only ever hear the good stuff in their life. Okay, so let's talk about, um, let's say, I mean, it's hard not to get political with historical figures, but uh, Thomas Jefferson. Okay. Okay, if you're raised and all you ever hear about Thomas Jefferson is that he wrote the Declaration of Independence and he was a genius and he started the University of Virginia and he built Monticello and this and that, you're going to think this is a great man. But you know what else he did? He also raped his slaves. Mm -hmm. He also had slaves. He, he defended slavery. He protected it. 
just like Peter, who was both a follower of Christ and Christ calls him Satan. What happens with uh, what our problem is, is when we only hear one side of the story for so long, you can't just then add in the bad stuff and go on. Once someone's okay. been built up, and this is where there's a lot of controversy in America right now about our, our right. historical figures. Jonathan Edwards. If you're, if you're on Twitter, if you follow these people, there's a lot of people saying we should you know, cancel Jonathan Edwards. And everyone's like, oh, you can't just cancel people. You can, and cancel is a terrible word, and no one should cancel anybody. But what they're saying is we should disregard Jonathan Edwards. We don't even know if he was a Christian. Look at all the good stuff he did. Here's the problem. For, we've already heard the good stuff for a couple hundred years. You can't just one day say, oh, he also did some bad stuff. Let's continue on. You've got to take some time, years even, to reevaluate these people. Take them off the pedestal. Put them down on the bottom shelf. Elevate some other people because we have a bad perspective on them. This is what fundamentalists don't want to do with their leaders. They don't want to have any... Um, chance that they're going to be taken off the leadership pedestal if you take down lee robertson john r rice j frank norris what do you have who do you have in fundamentalism if you get rid of jonathan edwards then everyone who's ever sinned is not a christian anymore is that what you're saying when we look at historical figures if the person has been balanced we just accept what's good and reject what's bad but if for years and years and years decades or whatever they've only been promoted as good they need to be taken off the shelf for a while, not used as an example, until we get a better perspective on them. So Jack Hiles does not need to be used as a, an example of anything good <laughs> for years. And I'm, I don't know Maybe who's listening ever. to your podcast. <laughs> Maybe ever. But the point is, like, because you could have some – I don't know who listens to your podcast or not. but um, It could be anybody. W.B. Riley. Um, yeah. Catch him. Uh, any leader who's been promoted as sort of the foundational leader for a movement, um, whether it's John Calvin or Luther or the founders of the Southern Seminary or whoever it is, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John Wesley, whoever your leader is, whoever you look to to define your movement. Mm -hmm. if, if they've only been portrayed as a good person, you've got to take them down for a while. You've got to, so, so fundamentalism, John R. Rice needs to be taken down as a leader for years until we can put him in the right place. And if he can withstand the scrutiny, great, put him back. If Jonathan Edwards okay. can withstand the scrutiny like Peter could, put him back. Okay. But John R. Rice, J. Frank Norris, Lee Robertson, they've been held up as sort of the examples and the models. And no one's talked about their racism. No one's talked about the sexual abuse. You can't just be like, well, now that we know about it, let's just move on. Like, no, you've got to take them out of leadership until we can balance their image. And then if they can still be like a Peter, great. But there's a good chance they're not going to be like a Peter. They're going to be like a Judas. Yeah. And you won't be able to maintain them as leaders anymore. But that, that, that scares people because what it means is redefining your tradition. And really redefining your identity. And there's nothing scary to people. But, but I love that because I love the way you said that because I'm sitting here thinking, okay, but how do we evaluate whether they're 
we then look at them as someone to look back to or not because you know i've only heard just as a personal testimony i've only heard good things about j frank norris my entire life until i started this study in february okay yeah but after every stone that i turned i can't find anything to then positively say about the guy right but then you know <laughs> i'm like is there something that i can say okay yeah let's be honest about this guy but you know, I don't want to treat him unfairly as I would a Luther when I know Luther's flaws. Yeah. And they, they've been open about Luther's flaws. And so as we come to Rice, you know, you can say, well, Rice, he had integrity. He was, mm -hmm. you know, he, he worked at getting along with people. He was not disagreeable. But here's some issues with him, you know, yeah. and treating them, you know, as, as best we can fairly and, and justly. Yeah, and part of the problem is people people are not computers. We're not computers. Right. We're not just brains. We don't – what's the Bible say? It's not know the right thing. It's not do the right thing. It's love God. Okay, it's not just about knowing and believing. It's about loving, and that's an emotional. That's, a, that's your, uh, your emotions. That's your will. That's your desires. That's a bunch of stuff. What comes to our leaders, it's not just that John or Rice or Jane Frank Norris was held up as a model. People love them. So we're not objective about them. It's not just like, okay, well, once we know everything, it's fine. It's more than that. Mm -hmm. There's an attachment to these people, which is what happens. Like, that's normal. But the attachment has to be broken when they've been held up in a, in a way that's been uh, false. Yeah, and that, 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 that takes time crowd with Jonathan Edwards. And, and I've got professors who I love and who are great professors who I see them being very defensive about Jonathan Edwards because they've devoted their life to studying him and they've been, they've really loved him. They've really seen him as a model and they've, they've become attached to him. Mm -hmm. And now people are saying we need, we're not even sure he's saved. And they're like, Whoa, that, I well, maybe he wasn't saved. Like, why can't we accept that? where did Jesus say that Jonathan Edwards was saved? And this is where history comes in. History gives you the true picture. Right. And we then evaluate. And, and the problem with Edwards is, yeah, he was saved by all the information we were given, but let's throw in some new information. He kidnapped people and held them against their will. Does that sound like a saved person? Well, I don't I'm going to have to think about that one. So it's now that we have more information and more understanding, can we, can we see them in their true light or are we still attached to them? And that's why you see, you know, the hundred percent Hiles. I don't know if you are aware of those pens that were handed out. That's not just that we, it wasn't that we agree with Hiles. That wasn't the point. It was that we are for him no matter what. Okay. When you have that level of attachment, you've got to, you've got to step back from that. And, and we've got to look at it, not just look at it objectively, but make sure our hearts aren't drawn to the wrong kind of people. J. Frank Norris is a model and is held up literally as a model in some colleges. Like you can literally see a model of him, <laughs> pictures of him. Those are meant, statues, I'm getting to the statue thing. Statues <laughs> go back to the Old Testament, right? Statues are meant to, to draw your heart to something. It's not just to teach, no one learns history from statues. That's As a historian, is ridiculous. Thank you. Thank you. I, I don't go to seminary and get a PhD in history by walking around 
and looking at statues. <laughs> I don't remember the last time I looked at a historical statue. Yeah. Statues yeah. are designed to train your heart to love. Right. Okay, so you you go to your gravesite and you have a statue of your mother who died. It's to honor her. It's to raise her up. It's to show that you love that person. Fine. But when you have a statue of J. Frank Norris, you're teaching people. When you have a picture of him and you have his Bible and his shoes, these are images teaching and training our hearts to value this person. Right. You're saying that that person was that worthy of being mm -hmm. remembered in that way. Yeah. It wasn't just, you know, about him. Yeah. It was, you were meant to have a feeling about him, mm -hmm. a respect and honor in a way that you wouldn't honor somebody else who had the same qualities. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of special attachment until that is broken. You can't trust these leaders, these historical figures. Um, and so what we need to do with fundamentalism is we need to take them all off the statue, you know, pull the statues down, look at the history. And if you want to put them back up, okay. But only after you're sure that they are worthy of being held up as a model. And that's a lot of heart searching. This is where Christianity is really about searching your heart, evaluating where you're, you're making idols out of things. It's, it's interesting that the Bible talks about graven images. Okay, why? Because idols are representative of what we want a picture of what we love. So it wasn't that you couldn't ever carve anything. It was just that they, that's an easy way to make an idol out of something. And so we're not too far past that. You know, the way people are, are literally killing to protect statues. Well, that sounds like an idol to me. And so you got statues. Fundamentalism has, an, has a statue of Jack Isles. Uh, you can say that's not an idol. Okay. Um, they've got statues and they've got the Hall of Fame in colleges. Okay. If you're willing to overlook their sin, that's an idol. So. I think those last five minutes was. <laughs> <laughs> now you know why I don't get invited. Now you know why I don't get invited to any of these conferences. <laughs> Man. Thank you so much for taking the time to come out, come on the, the podcast today. And uh, I think that was the, the hit on all cylinders. I appreciate it. Um, any last things you want to say? I mean, I always try to end things. The solution to all of this is love. God's love for us changes our hearts. We respond with love towards God through Christ. And then we love our neighbors. That's the solution for fundamentalism. It's worked out in a lot of different ways. But if we want to fix fundamentalism, we've got to love people and love God like Christ taught us to. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening today, guys. The next time we're going to continue uh, on this journey through the history of the IFB. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about uh, the early days of Jack Hiles, the rise of the mega churches in the 70s and 80s. And uh, if you enjoyed the episode, please give it a share and make sure you give a rating for the podcast. You can follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And until next time, to God, not the pastor, be the glory. <laughs>